Well, if you were to ask people what is the worst crime, I think most would respond with murder. And you'd probably agree, rightly so. It doesn't seem to be anything worse than murder, mostly because murder is final. There's no coming back from that. You're taking a life that is not yours to take, and there's nothing worse than that. It's so serious, murder comes with the greatest punishment. If you take a life, you're going to pay with your life, either life in jail or even the death penalty. And biblically, we don't dispute that murder is really one of, if not the most or the worst acts you can do. But murder becomes even more serious a crime when you bring God into the equation. You see, where does the act of murder come from? What drives a person to commit murder? Spiritually, we can trace murder back to pride. When people murder, they're in effect trying to play God. In some way, they, they get offended, their will is not done. So they murder in order to, to get their way done, to get their will accomplished, to serve themselves. Murder is perhaps the ultimate way people try and play God in the sense of exerting their will over others. But humans, they don't have the power to give life like God, only have the power to take life, and so that's what they do when the, when the situation arises. But fittingly, there's a warning here, because whenever you try and play God, you only end up becoming like the devil. And isn't this what was behind Satan's first sin? It was pride, this desire to exalt the self, to have his will done on earth as it is in heaven, to to want to be served. And when Satan didn't get his way, what did he do? He lashed out and did the only thing he could do, and that was to take life. Don't be mistaken, Satan's temptation of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden was nothing short of murder. He deceived Eve, telling her that when she ate of the fruit, she wouldn't die. But the exact opposite was the case. And Satan knew that. He knew that all of humanity would be plunged into a permanent spiritual death the moment Adam and Eve rebelled against God. And so in a very real sense, Satan is responsible for the murder of the entire human race. And because of that original sin, we are all born spiritually dead, cut off from God, separated from his goodness. And this is why Jesus said in John 8:44 that Satan was a murderer from the beginning. And ever since that time, ever since the fall, all mankind has been born in sin and has residing within the same pride which led to Satan's first rebellion. We all in our sinful hearts, we want to exalt the self. We want to be God. We want to call the shots. We want our will to be done. And many down through the ages have like Satan, resorted to murder to get their will done. And wasn't that true of the very first generation after the fall? I mean, just the first children born. And what happened? You remember the story. You remember their names? Cain and Abel. You remember what happened? They brought their offerings before the Lord. Abel was genuine. Cain was not. And so God had no regard for Cain's offering. And jealousy and rage then filled Cain's heart. Instead of submitting to God, he lashed out. And he sought to solve the problem of his frustration, so he thought, and he rose up and murdered his brother. Of course, that solved nothing, and he only ended up succeeding in becoming like the devil, fully given over in rebellion against God. And listen to what John says about that in 1 John chapter 3, verse 8. He says, The one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. Verse 10, by this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. 
For this is the message which you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, not as Cain, who was of the evil one and slew his brother. And for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. See, Cain loved himself more than his brother. He loved himself more than God. And so he murdered. He took a life in order to serve himself, just like Satan did. And hence, Cain is called the child of the devil, and so are all who follow in his steps. And from then until now, nothing's really changed in the heart of man. God, God is love, but whenever man tries to exalt himself and play God, he only becomes like Satan, who is the father of hate. And how many people down throughout the ages have proven willing to take their hatred all the way to murder, like the devil? And how many rulers and kings and leaders, those in authority, have taken their hate all the way to mass murder? The sin of murder is nowhere more seen or abused than among human leaders. History tells us that there are some men who would likely murder the entire human race in order to get their way if they could, much like Satan did. Puny men get a taste of power, and to get more power to hold on to the power they have, they're just fine with wiping people off the face of the earth just to get their way. The pattern of man, it's taking life in order to serve self, isn't it? Take life to serve self. Do you realize that in the middle of the 20th century, three men were largely responsible for the murders of 100 million people? Think about that number, 100 million people. That's the death count under the regimes of Adolf Hitler, Joseph Stalin, and Mao Zedong. Just think of that number, 3 to 100 million. And surely they would have kept murdering in order to keep their power. It's just the way of Satan is now the way of mankind. Take life in order to serve self. Now, why am I telling you all this? Well, because when you think about sin and Satan and the world like this, the contrast between the way of the world and the way of the Lord becomes so much clearer and so much more profound. Because what is the way of sin, Satan, and the world? It is to take life in order to serve self, But what is the way of God? What is the way of God's Son? It is to give life in order to serve others. Why did Jesus come to this sin-cursed earth that deserved only judgment? It wasn't for himself. It was for us. It was for the lost. He came out of love. And although Jesus was the King of kings, the Lord of lords, he was the rightful, he is the rightful ruler of this earth. He didn't come to take life, to serve himself. He came to, in more ways than one, give his life in order to serve others, to save others, even to redeem his enemies. That's part of what makes Jesus so different, part of what makes Jesus so special, certainly part of what makes him a worthy Savior to follow. And it's crystal clear, the way of sin and Satan and the world is just the opposite of the way of the Lord. And Jesus came to show a better way and to lead us to a better way, to bring us into a better way. And it is this way, the way of the Lord, that we come to learn about this morning. We're back in the Gospel of Mark. And today we find one of the most significant passages on the mission of Jesus coming from his own mouth, hands down. Jesus himself reveals in an unmistakable way why he came. 
He doesn't say everything there is to say about his mission, about why he came, but he does reveal quite a lot. And we get a real insight into the mind and the mission of the Lord here. In addition, Jesus leads us. He died to open up the way of the Lord, the way of salvation. In fact, Jesus himself is the way. And so that's why we are called to follow him. Follow him and be redeemed. Follow him and be changed. And the passage we have this morning, we get a real window into what that looks like, what this way of the Lord looks like, what it looks like and means to follow him. The way in which Jesus leads is so different from the world. It's the way of love. It's, it's not about serving yourself. It's about serving others. And when we do this, we are most reflecting God. We are most becoming like Christ. And that's what our discipleship is all about. So it's really no understatement to say this is one of the most significant passages in Mark's gospel. And so needless to say, we're going to spend a little more time taking a look at it. Mark chapter 10. Verses 41 through 45. That's the passage. And this week I want to build on the contrast we saw last week. We started to see between Jesus and the disciples. And really two ways become very clear. Two paths as Jesus speaks. And I want to build up that contrast again. And really it's the contrast between the way of the world and the way of the Lord. Simple enough. It's what we're going to see this morning. A contrast between the way of the world and the way of the Lord. Once again, so that we may know more about what it means to follow Jesus on his way. It is simple enough, contrast between the way of the world and the way of the Lord. So, number one, the way of the world. Let's see this beginning in our text, the way of the world. Look at verse 41 of Mark chapter 10. It begins and says, Hearing this, the ten began to feel indignant with James and John. Now, already you can tell, that's, it's like we're jumping into the middle of a story, and we are. We're picking up where we left off last week. But if you weren't here last week, this is not going to make any sense. So I'll give you the, the short version recap of, of where we are in Mark's gospel. In short, we are very close to, to the end, the end of Christ's life. In fact, he's on the road to Jerusalem where he will die. So this is right up into the end. And it's on that road that Jesus stops and he gives his disciples the third prediction of, of his death, of what's going to happen to him. The disciples, though, they, they don't get it. They still don't get it. They don't have ears to hear what it's all about, what the messianic mission is all about. They still have glory on the mind. Just, just remember, not long before this, Peter, James, and John, they saw Jesus transfigured in glory up on that mountain. It's like they can't get it out of their minds. Jesus has promised them glory. And that despite everything he said about his death and suffering, they still believe that when they get to Jerusalem, Jesus will transform into glory. The kingdom will come right then and there. It's not until chapter 13 that Jesus reveals, actually, I'm not coming back in glory until after this thing called the Great Tribulation. But first, he must suffer, he must die. But they just don't get it. They don't get that. And as proof positive that they don't get it, what happens next, earlier in Mark 10? Right after Jesus announces he's going to have to suffer and die in Jerusalem, James and John, they come up to Jesus and they ask him, Hey Lord, we want you to do what we ask of us. We want to sit one on your right hand and one on your left in your kingdom glory. Now look, James and John, they display a a true faith in this request. They they really believe Jesus is the Messiah. And that's good. But... And this is a time when Jesus, he's so selflessly focused on serving others, even to the point of death. Meanwhile, what are they thinking about? 
They're just thinking about themselves. They're thinking about what they can get. They're still consumed with their selfish interests. They're not setting their mind on God's interests or the interests of others, just, just themselves. They're seeking to be served. And so last week we made this contrast between the selfish sons of Zebedee, it's James and John, and the selfless son of man. And Jesus responds. He corrects their misunderstanding. And they've got the path to glory all wrong. It's not wrong that they desire kingdom glory, but, but you see there's a cost associated with that glory. And as we learn, the cross comes before the crown. And all disciples are called to pick up your cross as you follow Jesus to his glory. And that's all what we covered last week. We basically ended with Jesus shutting down and, and correcting these misguided disciples. But then, then you hear about the other ten of the twelve, and they find out what James and John were up to, and they're not very happy about it. And that's where we're getting to in verse 41. Somehow they found out what James and John were, were bugging Jesus about, and when they found out, it says they became indignant. This indignation, it's an anger, a displeasure, a feeling of resentment. They were outraged that James and John would go behind their back and go up to Jesus and ask for the top spots in the kingdom to the exclusion of them. Now, just stop for a second and think, why do you think this is? Why do you think the ten are so angry with James and John here? Don't think that they have pure motives or a righteous anger and the only reason they're mad with James and John is because James and John beat them to the punch. If they had the chance, they would have easily or happily jumped over the other disciples and asked for the top spots in the kingdom. They'd have no problem with that. They're just mad because they got to Jesus first, James and John. So I got a car dealership. And you all know this car salesman, they circle the lot like sharks, sharks smelling blood. And just picture a couple rolling up to a dealership and a salesman immediately swoops on them, and they're like, oh, we're just browsing, we're not going to buy today, just, just, just looking around. So he backs off, he says in his mind, I don't want to be too aggressive, so he's going to give him 10 minutes, and he's going to come back for the kill. But the second he leaves, a second salesman comes up, and he's not so withdrawn. He's aggressive, he's pressuring them and pressuring them, so much so that he, he does it, he seals the deal. They buy a car right then and there. And so that second salesman, he gets all the commission. And meanwhile, the first guy comes back only to find that the rug has been swept out from under him. He just lost that commission. He's been beaten to the punch. And so you can imagine his, his anger, his frustration with that second salesman who beat him to it. See, that's why the ten are upset with the two here. It's because they've been beaten to the punch. And you have to realize that the other ten disciples, they're just as selfishly ambitious as James and John. They all want positions of power and prestige. They all want to be served. Remember, these 12, they were all a common folk. They, they never had any power in their lives. But now that they started following Jesus, they've tasted some power. They've been promised kingdom glory, and now they just want it. They want. They want to feel what it's like to be rulers, to be served. They want to be great. And that explains why we always find the disciples arguing about who's the greatest. Remember back in Mark chapter 9, the second time Jesus announced, guys, I'm going to go to Jerusalem, I'm going to suffer and die. Right after that, what do they do? They start arguing among themselves about which of them is the greatest. And then, get this, later in, in the upper room, during the Last Supper, the night before his death, what do they do again? 
Once again, they start arguing about which, among, which of one of them is the greatest. Even though they're followers of Jesus, uh, still a real selfish ambition has infected them to the degree that they even resort to the way of the world to get to the top. How do you achieve greatness in the world? It's by stepping on others and stepping over others. But Jesus calls them out because that's not his way. And so look at verse 42. Calling them to himself, Jesus said to them, You know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. But it is not this way among you. Let's stop there. Jesus knows that his disciples have it all wrong once again. And so he's trying to set them straight. And basically he says to them, you, you guys, you're acting no differently than those in the world. In verse 42, you know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. They're supposed to be following him, but they're acting more like just leaders in the world, people of the world. And especially when it comes to leadership, what is the way of the world? It is to oppress, it is to harm, it is to domineer, it is to put down and to take, all to elevate the self. It's like we said earlier, what's the MO of the world? Take life to serve self, one way or another. And leaders of this world, to gain power or to maintain power, they believe that they they just have to take lives, either someone's quality of life or someone's quantity of life. And Jesus points out how the rulers of the Gentile nations lord their authority over their subjects who cower in fear. They sit high and mighty on their thrones. They want everyone to feel small before them. They want to look down. They just want to dominate people. And that's why, by the way, why do you think in the old throne rooms, the king's throne was always elevated? It's up on this pedestal upstairs. It's so that he's sitting high and mighty and all of his subjects, they come, they're forced to look up to him as if to remind them he's high and mighty and you're nothing. That's the way of the world. That's how the world leads. Do you want power? Do you want greatness? You've got to be willing to do what it takes to get to the top. You have to be ready to step on the necks of others. You have to dominate. You have to oppress to get your way. And so all human history, how do we see men rule and lead? By fear, by intimidation, by oppression, by violence, bloodshed. But here comes Jesus, and he scorns this type of leadership. That's the leadership model of Satan, isn't it? And that's the desire of Satan to serve self, is to be served. And now a fallen man with his pride-filled heart wants to take God's place, and he does that in the only way he knows how, by, by taking life, by stepping on others to get ahead. But this type of self-centered, self-serving leadership model has no place among Christ's followers, especially if they're going to be the future leaders of the church. Like that, that can't be. They have to learn this lesson. The disciples desire greatness in God's kingdom, and that's actually not their problem. Jesus never rebukes them for wanting to be great in the kingdom. First, second, that's not their problem. That desire to be great in God's eyes It's just that they're pursuing this greatness according to the ways of the world. They're taking a play out of the world's playbook when it comes to being great. I mean, these guys know what it's like to suffer under Roman oppression, but now they're acting like that. 
They're fighting, they're maneuvering, they're oppressing each other. They're trying to claw and sneak and and fight their way to the best seats in the kingdom. But this is not what the kingdom of God is about. This is not how greatness is achieved in God's kingdom. As Jesus said, hey, my kingdom is not of this world. You can expect things to be different in God's rule. And so that's why Jesus says to them in verse 43, it's not this way among you. Like this is not how, how we do things. They're his disciples. They should know already what true greatness is all about. They have to stop thinking like the world because Jesus calls them out of the world. They must not go the way of sin and Satan and the world any longer. Jesus came to oppose the way of the world and to lead in a new way. So first he tells them, it's not to be this way among you. Do not go the way of the world. And then secondly, he shows them he shows them the way of the Lord. And this is number two in our contrast that we're building. First, the way of the world. Secondly, the way of the Lord. The way of the Lord. And you'll see this contrast crystal clear. Look at verse 43. He says again, But it is not this way among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. That's not the first time Jesus has said something like this. Back when the disciples were arguing among themselves about who is greatest, how did Jesus respond to them? Mark 9.35, he says, If anyone wants to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. Very similar. And then again, in the Last Supper, when they're arguing about greatness again, Jesus responds, says nearly the same thing. Luke 22, verse 26. He says, But it is not this way with you, but the one who is the greatest among you must become like the youngest, and the leader like the servant. So here's the deal. There's not that many things that we have recorded that Jesus repeats three times. That alone is telling you this is a huge lesson. This is one of the main lessons that Jesus wanted to get across to his disciples before he died. This is it. Because without this lesson, they could not lead the church, let alone themselves. So what exactly is the lesson? Now, on the surface, it doesn't make any sense. It's another one of his paradoxes, like when Jesus said, whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. Like, that, that doesn't make any sense. That, that sounds like a contradiction. Of course, until you realize that he's not talking about saving this life, but the next. And likewise, here, it sounds ridiculous to say that the path to greatness is the path of a servant. Like, that's, that's not true. That's not how it works. That's not how the world works. Being a servant of others, that's the exact opposite of greatness. Greatness in the world is measured by how many servants you have. Not matter how much you serve, that, that doesn't make sense. And then being a slave, that's even worse. That is as low as you can get, especially in the ancient world. It's the exact opposite of greatness. So how can he say this is the path to greatness? But the key to unlocking this saying is realizing that Jesus, he's not talking about greatness in the eyes of the world. He's talking about greatness in the eyes of the Lord. He's talking about spiritual greatness, greatness in the kingdom. Once again, the kingdom of God is not of this world. Jesus never 
condemns them for seeking to be great. In fact, he leaves the door open. You want to be great? Sure. But here's how. It's not wrong to want to be great in the kingdom. But you have to understand what that really means. And to God and God's rule, greatness is all about being a servant of others, even a slave of all, which means you are giving your life in order to serve. You don't get to the top in God's kingdom by fighting and maneuvering and taking and stepping on others. You get to the top by serving others and letting them stand on your shoulders. This standard naturally flows out of love. 1 John 4 eight says that God is love. Love, it's so akin to who God is. So it kind of works like this. To be great in God's kingdom is to be like God. To be like God is to be loving. But to be loving is, is to serve. Love is the highest virtue in God's world. And service is the highest expression of that virtue. And all the while, Jesus has been trying to get his disciples to see this. That, the, that these guys, these 12, they're not enemies. They're not in competition with one another. They're, they're brothers. And they're to serve one another. And so he says to them in that upper room, John 13, verse 34, he says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. And by this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. And speaking of John 13, that statement came right on the heels of what event? It's when Jesus took the position of a slave and washed their feet, washed his disciples' feet. And they, they were floored by that. I mean, Jesus, that, that's, a, that's slave work. What are you doing? You're the master. You're the great one. How can you wash our feet? But it's precisely because he was the great one that he was washing their feet. Because greatness to God is service. And Jesus left them an example to follow. There's no one greater. We made the link earlier that man's worst act is murder, which comes from hatred, which itself comes from pride, the way of the world. Take life to serve self. But Jesus leads us in the opposite direction. He's teaching us that man's greatest act is service, which itself comes from love, which itself comes from humility, from humility to love to service. It's, it's the opposite. It's giving life to serve others. After all, God is opposed to the proud. He gives grace to the humble. And I know, that it, just, it sounds crazy. This is so not how the world works. Even ourselves, we fall prey. But this is greatness in God's eyes. And so what about you? Are you too proud to serve? Are you too selfish to follow God's ways? Think about your life as a disciple of Jesus Christ, are you a servant like him? You see a bunch of tables, chairs, need folding at church. Is that work too beneath you? Like That's like a servant job. I'm not going to fold some tables and chairs. That's, does that, that's beneath me. Or children's ministry, you really need some more volunteers. Do you, do you jump up and serve? Or are you just, I don't want to be inconvenienced with my time and energy. I don't want to like prepare. I don't want to do that. Or maybe there's an older member at church who's having trouble with their eyesight and they need a ride to the doctor and, 
And do you say, you know, I'll, I'll happily do that? Or do you think, you know, I've, I've got my plans. Like, I don't want to give up my, my afternoon for something like that. Like, I've got stuff to do. What do you do? And what about your life at home? Because, you know, following Jesus, it's a 24-7 thing, this discipleship. It's not something you do for an hour on Sunday morning. So are you servant-minded at home as well? And some of you might be thinking, that's all I do at home. And if that's the case, good, but are you serving with a happy heart? But do you really serve? You're at home, you see the dishes piled up, and that's not your job, that's your spouse's chore. That's not on you. But they've had a rough day, you've got 15 minutes to spare, what do you do? You serve? Or maybe it's your day off, and you just want to relax. You've had a hard time at work, you just want to relax, have some me time, but your spouse or your kids or someone, they just they really need some help. They need you to help you with, help them with something. They need your time. So what do you do? Do you fight to defend your me time? You will hold on to that no matter what? Or do you sacrifice? You sacrifice to, to serve. Listen, it's not easy. This, this way of the Lord serving others, it's very clear. That's, that's not easy. But no one said spiritual greatness was going to be easy. The good news is that this greatness is open to all. Jesus says anyone can be like this because anyone can serve. You don't need a college degree to serve. You don't need to run a business. You don't need to be rich. You don't need to know everything there is about life or even the Bible. You just have to be humble and loving. And you can be great in God's eyes. And know something, this way, it's not just something Jesus talks about. He's not just spouting this off. This is something he, he goes and does first. He leads the way. He walks this way long before anyone else of humble, sacrificial service, showing love to all mankind by giving his life to serve others. Because even the messianic king is not exempt from God's standard of greatness. In fact, Jesus, he is the greatest of them all. And look at verse 45. It's a short passage, but this verse contains a lot. Verse 45. Right after this he says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus was not just all talk when it came to the virtues of humility and love and service. He walked that walk before anyone else. And even though he was the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings, the Son of Man, the Messiah. He didn't come to be served, which would have been rightfully his, but to serve. Now, how did Jesus serve? Just by washing some feet, healing a few people, helping the poor? I mean, yeah, but that pales in comparison to the real, ultimate way he served mankind. And that was, he says, by giving his life as a ransom for many. You have to be very clear here. Does the death of Jesus serve as our greatest example of sacrificial service? Yes. But I want you to keep in mind, that that's not the only reason Jesus died, to be our example. It's not even the main reason he died, just to be our example. He is our example, but something else, a real transaction took place in his death on the cross. And that's what he's talking about. He gave his life as a ransom for many. This verse, Mark 10:45, it is one of, if not the clearest statements of the mission of Jesus coming from his own mouth in Mark's gospel. 
I mean, just think about it. So far in Mark, what have we learned? We've learned that he, he's told us he's going to die on the cross, but we haven't learned so much about why he's going to die on the cross. He hasn't told them so much yet. Like, why, why would you do that? And that's part of their confusion. Like, why would the Messiah die even on a cross? It doesn't make sense. They don't know why. But here he's starting to reveal what this is all about. He doesn't say everything there is to say about the meaning of his death, but he tells us quite a bit. Specifically, we learn that his death functions as a substitute sacrifice given to redeem lost sinners. He's our substitute sacrifice. Notice, it says Jesus gave his life. He gave it. It wasn't taken from him. He willingly gave his life. His death was not an accident. It was not even an execution. In the end, it was a voluntary sacrifice. No one takes his life away from him, he said. And what exactly was he sacrificing? It says he gave himself, his life, meaning he went to death. You have to remember, biblically, what is death? Death is separation. Physical death is where your body is separated from your spirit. Spiritual death is where your spirit is separated from God. And in some real, mysterious sense, Jesus was to undergo death, physical and spiritual, on the cross. And surely his spiritual death, in a sense, took place when he cried out, on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because in that moment, 2 Corinthians 5.21 was taking place, which says that God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And that gets to why he was doing this. Well, why, why would he do this? Why would he sacrifice himself for, for us? And he says he gave his life as a ransom for many. One life in, ex, in exchange for many lives. He gave himself for many. And the key word here is ransom. Lutro in the Greek, lutron. The ransom refers to some payment that secures some release. For instance, this word is used to refer to money paid to ransom prisoners of war or to release slaves, redeem a bond, cover a debt. That Jesus viewed men as captives or slaves of sin, wholly unable to free themselves from its power. And so his death was to be their means of release, their freedom, their ransom from sin. A key word also is for. He's a ransom for the many. Not that word anti means instead of, in the place of. It carries the idea of substitution. Jesus, he's going to do for the many what they can't do themselves and what no one else can do for them. He's going to take their place, pay their price on their behalf. But still, we have to ask, okay, well, so we get why he's doing it. Why do we even need this? Why do we need a substitute sacrifice? Well, because the wages of sin is death. We're all sinners, born and lost in sin. We all fall short of what? Glory of God. Our sin incurs a spiritual debt before a perfectly holy God. And being perfectly righteous, he must judge. And this debt is so great, it will take us all eternity to pay it off away from God's presence. And that's what hell is. Hell is the place where you go to bear the wrath of God for your sins, for yourself, by yourself. Being spiritually dead, being unrighteous, we can't escape this fate. We're already sealed and condemned in our sin. We're enslaved to sin. We're bound for judgment. But that's why 
we could really use a substitute. Someone to take our place. Someone to bear the wrath of God for us. To pay the penalty for our sins. To endure our judgment. And God, although He's holy and just, He's also loving. And that's why He sent Jesus to be that substitute. That's why He came. That's what Jesus will accomplish on the cross. He's he's ransoming us from the power and the penalty of sin. And this ransom, by the way, it's not, it's not paid to Satan. It's paid to God himself. He's ransoming us from God's wrath. Jesus is suffering and satisfying the just wrath of God on our behalf. And the price, the only price acceptable is his own life. The life of the Son of God. Only his life is valuable enough and powerful enough to endure the wrath and pay for the sins of the many. Only he can do this. Turn really quick to Isaiah 53. It's a passage you're probably familiar with. And so much of what Jesus says here, in these few words, he's channeling this imagery from this great prophecy in the Old Testament of the coming, suffering servant. Jesus, he's making clear to his disciples what his messianic mission is all about. And it's true, he will come in glory the second time. But first, the Son of Man comes as the suffering servant. And when you see this in Isaiah 53, just just listen as I read to my emphasis, the, the concept of substitution, the one in place for the many, it's so clear. Listen to what happens to the servant. Isaiah 53, we'll just read a little bit, verse 4. It says, speaking of this servant of God, Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted, but he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell on him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. In verse 10, But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring, he will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many, as he will bear their iniquities. Therefore I will allot him a portion with the great. He will divide the booty with the strong, because he poured out himself to death. And he was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. In short, Son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And if Jesus has ransomed you, then there are some serious implications to this. The salvation that Jesus secured on the cross, he offers to all who will turn from their sins and believe in him. I said earlier, Jesus is the way to salvation. He's the only way. There's no other path back to God. No one else has paid the price for you. No one else can pay the price for you. There's no other ransom. You certainly can't pay for yourself. Your only hope is to believe in him and to follow him for the forgiveness of your sins, for eternal life. 
for Jesus alone is the way, the truth, and the life. If that's you, if you have done that, if you have placed your faith genuinely in Christ as your Lord and Savior, then that means you have been ransomed. And that means you now belong to Him. When Jesus ransomed you, He set you free from sin, but He didn't just set you loose. He bought you. You belong to Him now. And now He expects you to live for Him and to live like Him. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 20, it says, You have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. The price for your redemption wasn't cheap. It wasn't something cheap like silver or gold. That's cheap. It was something precious, like Peter says, something invaluable, like the precious blood of, of a lamb, unblemished, spotless, the blood of Christ. God gave so much to redeem you. Christ gave his life to redeem you. And so you shouldn't have any trouble seeing why he wants you to give now in return. Not to pay him back, that's not possible, but simply to reflect him. When you now sacrificially give yourself to others, you are most reflecting God. You are most becoming like Christ. That's what it's about now. That's what our discipleship is about. This is the way of humility, love, sacrificial service, even at a cost to yourself. Listen to this familiar passage. Philippians 2, starting at verse 3. Where we're commanded, it says, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. It says, Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Translation, serve. Don't just serve yourself or be served, serve others. But then verse 5 says, Have this attitude of humble service, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God and did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. See, Jesus came revealing the way of the Lord. And he went first. He went that way first. It's the way of sacrificially serving others, of giving your life, one way or another, for others. And that's the only way that leads to glory. And verse 9 says, For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. And although Jesus has the top spot, that path to glory is the same for us. The disciples, they longed for that kingdom glory. They, they wanted to be great. And you know what? That's not wrong to desire this greatness in God's eyes. But, but there's no shortcuts. There's only one way, and it's the way of the Lord. And so the contrast is clear. The way of the world, the way of the Lord. And the question is, which will you follow? The way of death or the way of life? The way of taking life to serve self or the way of giving life to serve others. The way of hate or the way of love, the way of sin, Satan, and the world, or the way of the Lord Jesus. And for those who have placed their faith in Christ as Lord and Savior, the choice is clear. Let me finish reading for you 1 John chapter 3, verses 15 and 16. It says, Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. 
But we know love by this. We know love by this, that he, Christ, laid down his life for us. And we have to lay down our lives for the brethren. That's what it's all about. Let us follow Jesus. And let's let our discipleship be known by that. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Father, we, we thank you for your love for us, which you showed by serving us. Lord, your love wasn't just a feeling. It was an action, an act of service. We gave your own son to die in our place. And Lord Jesus, we, we thank you for that humble, sacrificial death on our behalf. By this, we know life. We know forgiveness. Otherwise, we would be lost and condemned where we stand. But you redeemed us at a heavy price, the price of your own life, the, the precious life of the Son of God. No small price indeed. And uh, what can we do but thank you? Thank you for, for the gift, the redemption, the ransom given for us, how you served us. And Lord, you died for us, but you also died to leave us that example in all ways. And so may we now follow your lead. For those who have turned to you in, in faith, we are on the road following you. And this is what that road looks like. This is the path of Christ, the way to glory. And it's the way of a servant. It's a way of giving our lives, one way or another, our time, our energy, our money, just ourselves in order to serve others. And so I pray that we all are convicted and we follow that way and we hop on and we seek to deny ourselves, to count others as more important than ourselves and to serve. For in this, we are most becoming like Christ. We are most reflecting God and his ways. And that's what we want to be. Keep us free from the ways of the world, even though they still cling to us at times. And we deny that way and follow Christ wholeheartedly, all for your glory, the God who ransomed us. We thank you and pray in Christ's name. Amen.